to immediately notice which pieces had compositions that played on each other, colors, as you said, that really danced um, well next to one another. And there was like a new story being told when we'd put one of my cat ladies next to one of Teresa's paintings. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the TF Cast. I'm your host, Willis Stout. Hey, Grum here. I'm wearing the same sweater as last week, and it is March 15th here in the solarium. And I'm your host, Jacob Bases. Today with us, we have Jenna Freimuth, uh, artist and illustrator coming down from the cities to um, talk about her work up there and her kind of a retrospective on a previous guest we had, Teresa Crozier, um, and their show together, Lady to Lady. Jenna, if you could please just introduce yourself to the audience and uh, tell us what it's like to be here. <laughs> yeah, um, I am Jenna Freimuth, and like you said, I'm an artist, illustrator, and designer. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I work full-time doing freelance art and design, and in my own practice, I do illustration and um, a fiber art collaboration, and um, it's lovely to be back in Mankato. It was the first time I came down here was for the Lady to Lady show at the 410 Project with Teresa, and um, we learned a lot about how our work compared to one another, and it helped me to step back and evaluate some of my own personal work, which I don't get the chance to do all that often. Awesome. Uh, mm -hmm. can, you, can you start out and just kind of like break down what it was like as an artist coming down from the cities to like uh, interacting with the Mankato art scene and um, how that show uh, impacted you and you know, just kind of like what it was like to be here. Yeah. Um, well, Teresa approached me to have a show with her. She is a painter and she paints these, you know, um, elaborate female portraits. And I, for years, have been dabbling in making these cat lady drawings on my own and selling prints here and there, but for the most part, just making that work. And when she asked me to have a show in Mankato, which I've heard a lot about because I have some friends who did go to school down here. Um, it seemed like the perfect opportunity for me to bring my art outside of my studio and actually show it and have that external motivation to be able to prepare it, to speak with her about um, what kind of show we would have together and her perspective and her experience down here in the art community and having those connections is something I really valued because it's an area that I I don't really do a lot of on my own. Um, I handle a lot of my own, you know, art business side of things. But as far as finding opportunities, that's kind of a weakness for me. So for her to present a great studio space in her art community and really kind of fold me into it, it just felt like a little bit of a gift, so, uh, an opportunity to show my work and to have a discussion about why I was making this stuff that was truly my own personal artwork it wasn't a design for another client or it wasn't um it wasn't a project specifically to license or make money elsewhere it was really just stuff i was making for me so being able to come down to mankato was a real treat because it felt like a really safe place to explore some really personal work how did you come to know teresa yeah we have some of the same social circles up in minneapolis um i'm friends 
with her sisters and um, for the longest time I knew her whenever she would come visit Minneapolis and see her family and our friends and our circle. Um, and then knowing that she's an artist too, whenever she is in town and we get a chance to really talk, it's fun to see what she's working on, fun to see what I'm working on. Mm. And, uh, and then this show just deepened that a little bit more. You, you mentioned you spoke a lot about what the two of you wanted from a show and from a show together. Like, um, what was that like and, and what did you come to? What was in, inspiring about the opportunity? Um, she she approached me after she noticed what I was um, sharing online about how I build my portraits. And they're mm. very um, experimental and they kind of, they evolve a lot of layers and there's a little bit of escapism to approaching those. And she saw a similarity in that, even though I work digitally and she works traditionally in paint. Mm. Um, there's a lot of kind of unknown factors when we approach our work. We just kind of start and see what happens and layer things together. And so when she proposed um, this show, as we were talking about the similarities and what she was noticing, we could we started to see that there was just something more to talk about when it comes to escapism in art, like the process of making it, mm. sometimes what the result, the figure in these portraits uh, the mystery behind them because they don't really have a story that we're presenting specifically. They're just kind of ornate or um, characters, really. We mm. discovered we were both building characters. Mm. I, in that, are those characters, uh, do they, do they, are they carried forward at all through your works or are they kind of like um, uh, something that you explore and capture and then like move on from? They definitely are a one-off situation. Um, I don't typically draw characters in a way where I could make like a children's book hmm. where things could, um, here's all the expressions. Yeah. But there is a series where similar motifs are being represented. Um, my cat lady portraits that I was showing at the 410 with the lady to lady, they um, it's really an excuse not to draw people at hmm. first because it was more interesting to me to draw what was a comfort creature, which is for mm. me cats and the escapism of pretend and dress up and formality behind, um, you know, big hairstyles or heavily patterned frocks. And so the same cat might not be drawn over and over again, but they are all heavily adorned. They all have some sort of a wig or some sort of, um, you know, headpiece of some kind and a lot of pattern. So I get to I get to use them as a a place to play with pattern and to really just kind of lean into um, my personal safety space, which is spending time with felines. <laughs> is awesome. is some of that pattern work, or is the any of this discovery for kind of stuff that you end up uh, putting into your other work, the kind of stuff that you end up selling to a client or online? Yeah, um, I discovered after school that what I really enjoyed the most when it came to actually making artwork and making a living from artwork was surface pattern design and the puzzle of creating a drawing, maybe in certain fragments or pieces, and then composing them digitally to make a seamless repeat, which could be wallpaper, gift, gift wrap, um, tablecloths, you know, greeting cards, like all kinds of things that everything you see in a target has surface pattern design applied to it somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I make these cat lady portraits, I'm really kind of playing with stuff I enjoy making and it is fueling the stuff I enjoy making and selling elsewhere too. 
It was really interesting at the show, actually. You wouldn't have expected it from having... I Like, I've seen Teresa's work before, but when they were on the wall next to each other, they almost, like, oh, there was a lot of similar colors and ones that just kind of seemed to meld into one another. I, I would have never had it expected that. And I, I think it was a little bit of a surprise, maybe even to her. She yeah. mentioned it at the show. Um, uh, what was it like to hang the show? And, um, you know, what's the design process of integrating two artists like that? That was, um, that was such an experience because we knew that we were coming in with a about the same number of pieces, but we hadn't seen all of each other's work coming in to the show. So we expected to create these little vignettes where there was a conversation, like a diptych for two pieces next to each other. So we knew that there was going to be kind of a pairing off process, but we didn't expect it to be so fluid and so quick to be able to immediately notice which pieces had compositions that played on each other, colors, as you said, that really danced, um, well next to one another and there was like a new story being told when we'd put one of my cat ladies next to one of Teresa's paintings and one of them that we enjoyed the most um, I have a cat lady that's holding a fish and I do that a lot because it's almost like cats are my comfort creature and then they almost have their own comfort creatures as well so it's almost like the fish is their obsession their pet their thing you you know whatever that may be and this cat is holding a fish in kind of like like a oh my the burden of the weight of the fish is there they have a little bored face and then Teresa's painting was of I think it was depicting like mother mary and it, like it had like this very cherub baby on her lap and she also had a little bit of a vacant expression mm-hmm. and we started to joke that it was just like trading baby for fish but there was just like this, uh, like this, <laughs> they both have a burden mm-hmm. into some way. And, but the color was really similar and it was such a treat to be able to, first of all, explore Mankato for the first time, to be down here, to be in a local gallery space that really fostered creativity, to spend time with Teresa and then to see my work next to hers and come up with these little pairings. And then when it happened, it was just like, well, gosh darn, that was just so easy. There was some really nice surprises here and hanging it was a delight. Mm-hmm. Oh, Trading really baby cool. for fish. <laughs> Happens organically. Yeah. Um, what, what, brought, what brought you into art? Like when did you get started and what brought you to become an artist? I think it was one of those, um, we all have things like when we're growing up where you have a you show some skill in it and then you get positive reinforcement. And so you just mm-hmm. keep following it. Mm-hmm. And I think that is pretty much how it started for me. I always enjoyed coloring. I always enjoyed drawing. It was definitely a place to escape mm-hmm. and to just zone out color and um, play pretend for a little while. And I got, you know, positive remark- remarks about it. So I just mm-hmm. kept following it. And it, that doesn't mean it was always easy to pursue it. Um, but it was enjoyable to pursue. So I did, I did go to college at um, University of Wisconsin in Green Bay for studio art as my major. Okay. I was going to ask a follow-up to that, and maybe that's the answer, but <laughs> are there any things in your artist career up to this point that you consider to be like a really great investment, either in terms of um, time or money or resources, just something that really made a difference? Yeah, um, 
you know, I knew I didn't want to teach when I went to school for art. And I think there might have been a little bit of a pushback against everyone just assuming I would teach in order to make a living as an artist. Mm. Um, so I took, uh, like my minor was business administration, but that left me with a really big um, valley between studio art practice and a business minor where I was learning like corporate finance. Mm. And then I was, you know, majoring in jewelry metals. Like those two just don't really... Corporate finance isn't teaching me how to keep an inventory for my studio mm. practice. Mm. Um, and I thought that was just a way I could cobble something together. But what ended up being an investment post-college was just continuing to take different online classes for things. Mm. Um, and that might even just be other artist-generated courses, not necessarily like accredited courses of some kind. Mm -hmm. I did take a couple of continuing education courses at MCAD so I could get some um, graphic design skills under there because I wasn't really taking graphic design in school. Mm. Um, learning how to keep my own books from resources like Paper and Spark, um, which is a really great resource for any artist that wants to take bookkeeping to a level that's not so scary when you're mm -hmm. trying to manage all of your expenses and what's what when it comes to tax time. Yeah. So things like that, where I, the, where I became a little more self-taught into how to work for my artwork. Hmm. You, hmm. You, you mentioned that uh, you did not go with teaching as a route, as a career. Can you describe what your average work week looks like as an artist now? Yeah, now um, I work doing a lot of contract work as a freelancer, um, I, for about a year last year, I was working full-time for American crafts for a while. And then, um, they had some layoffs. And so I returned to my freelancing contract work. So for me currently, um, my week is consistently inconsistent. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I make a plan every week of what tasks externally need to actually happen. I have a collaboration that I help manage. There's clients that I have coming through that might have expectations if we have, um, you know, a deadline. Like right now I'm working on a branding project mm. or a podcast actually in mm. um, New York. So I will, I will have to sit down with my coffee in the morning. I like slow mornings. Mm. Sit down, figure out what other people need from me, and then I'll figure out what do I need from me in order to perpetuate those things that no one's asking me to do? Mm. Um, no one's asking me to update my website. No one's asking me to get my Etsy site up and running again. Mm. No one's asking me to make more artwork that's really helping me figure out what style I like to draw in. So mm. it's a bit of a mixed bag depending on um, what I have on my plate. But lots of admin uh, taking photos of work, editing photos of work, bookkeeping, um, and then really carving out that time to sit and draw and have an art practice, which has become kind of the escapism in mm. my week now. Yeah. Um, and how, like you said, you're doing a little bit of design work for a podcast yeah. in, in New York. It, is that some, is that a client that you seek or the clients that come to you? Um, that was a client that came to me. It was, um, it's a woman that I've worked with on past contract work before. So kind of similarly to how Teresa came to me to have an art show. I'm not great at going out and finding 
these opportunities because usually I'm kind of spinning my wheels and trying to figure out all this other stuff that I've been lucky to make good connections and those continue to foster results down the road. Um, but it's something I could be better at when it comes to finding, you know, new leads or new opportunities. Sure. Uh, would you like to talk about any of the projects that you've mentioned so far? I know you mentioned a fiber art uh, team up or some other things along the way. Yeah. I, I work on a collaboration with a woman from Iron Mountain, Michigan. Her name is Mindy Sue Myers. We both went to the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay, but at different times, and we had our professors really see a lot of uh, similarities with the two of us. And so about seven years ago, we connected and decided to make something, but we were long distance. So we, and we work in very different mediums. She's a fiber artist, she, sculpture actually, and I do illustration. But in college, I used to kind of draw comics over photographs and then stitch them with thread, like yes, messing with different mediums. But stitching was something we both enjoyed. So we discovered it was an easy thing to mail back and forth. We could hoop something up, take it out of the hoop, fold it up, mail it, and then allow it to be a place where there's not really a plan. We can just play with mark making and watch our two styles collide and... um have opportunities whenever we had shows similarly to like when I have a Teresa where we have to sit and actually think about what are we making and why are we making it? Cause we actually have to describe it. And we learned that it's a lot about disruption, trusting someone else to really like pick up where you left off. Um, not knowing if something you put down is going to get covered up or changed. And so there's just become a bit of a dynamic um, artwork that's been produced over seven years through that. process um and it's taught me a lot about managing an art project too because we do everything ourselves. we do Mm -hmm. our website our taking photos of the work and cataloging and managing um where the pieces are showing and how we're you know um talking about our project and having workshops and selling kits to other people so that they can try that process Mm. It's become its own little business. Yeah, I was about to say it, it. It sounded like in the beginning that you were describing what was essentially another like passion project, yeah. like putting stuff on the wall that you liked. But now it also sounds like you've uh, like you're selling kits. Um, mm-hmm. Like it. What what's what's the flip on that? Like when 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 does that become part of the idea? Do you do you, is there like a sunk cost thing where you're like oh, we need to we need to sell this or. Uh, Yeah, it's, you know, I think the reality that came to us when we made this work is that selling the artwork is one thing, and we all want to sell our artwork, and that's kind of the goal, but um, our art's not for everybody, and so we can continue to find our audience and find shows that would show our work to people, Um, but we also found that there was an interest in how we were making this work, the process of pen palling back and forth, of letting someone else pick up where you left off. And just, um, there was there was a little nugget to that when we did a workshop a few times. And so we just discovered that a way that we could help fund the time that we're putting into these, because it is a passion project still, um, would be to sell that experience. And mm. it was manageable for us to, um, in these kits, one of us will start a little three-inch hoop and put together a couple materials. And you don't know what you're getting. So you get mm. a little bit of that, pen pal mystery of like oh I don't know what's coming my way and I'm going to suddenly have to make a decision now what colors am I going to add what composition am I going to attempt like it's a puzzle Mm -hmm. and 
we discovered we could fund a little bit of our art project through that as opposed to just selling, you know, um, pieces that are over a hundred dollars. That is not what I had imagined at all. Like I, I, when, when, when you described the product, I would have imagined that you would be selling that pen pal experience between two people. Like, you know, you send it, but it's actually, you're participating in the conversation with the person. Yeah. They're making art with us. So we had people who wanted to, Mm. Um, join in with our project and we're like well we're still kind of figuring out how this works out between the two of us so while we're our like little collaboration here we can extend the club feeling so that everyone else can feel like you want to try making one okay cool we'll start it and then you finish it and you keep it please keep it we don't want it back (laughs) 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 and um, like we just we kind of learned that the the artwork we had more to offer than just the artwork. We had we mm-hmm. could offer this experience to kind of stretch yourself and to try something that you might be uncomfortable with. You might not like what you're getting in the mail, but it's totally up to you to change it. Mm-hmm. And maybe you have more at hand at home to use than what we're sending you. We're trying to prepare you so you have stuff to work with if you have nothing else to add to it. But um, we're not a part of the conversation anymore. It's up to you. And in the end, you have your own piece and you might appreciate a little bit more about what goes into these pieces when you try it yourself. That's cool. Uh, It sounds like, well, as, as we've discussed, you've, you've made your way into becoming an artist on, on some sort of a sustaining level. I think for a lot of artists getting started or even in an intermediate phase, there's like a, a difficulty in, in stepping into that version of their project. That's like, that focuses on making sure that you're offering a decent product to people who might want to buy it and, and getting some of those like business admin systems and pieces in place. Um, I wonder if, did you, do you struggle with that at all when you were getting started or, or do you have a just killer mindset on it that worked? Um, I always wanted to try to do it right. Um, I think, I knew that art wasn't just going to be a hobby for me. And Mm. in order for it to be, you know, presented as a pro, I was going to have to do the work to figure it out, to make sure that um, if the IRS came on by, that they could see, I did my best to try to do my own books or, Mm -hmm. and it's not always fun. I, it's, it's a slow process. I'm sure there are people out there who can pick it up a lot faster Mm -hmm. than I have, but ultimately, um, just deciding that I wasn't going to let being afraid of the technical stuff keep me from really being the pro I want it to be. So sometimes I have to, you know, I do have to look for outside resources to help teach me how to do that. But I will advocate for not not letting the fear of figuring out your bookkeeping or your inventory or your website or any of that stuff to keep you from sharing your work out there and then setting yourself up for success so that you're not playing small when you when you want to present yourself as an artist but then you in the back of your mind you're going well am I really an artist if I'm not paying income tax on what I get from selling prints yeah like, we're big oh sorry okay oh, uh we're big advocates on like get out there make it fix one thing and then a hundred one things later all of a sudden you got a pretty cool thing on your hands exactly <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it also sounds like you planned for it a little bit. Like earlier, you said that when you had like a you had like a business or accounting like minor in college, that those things don't gel. But I mean, it seems like the further in the conversation that they certainly did. 
if you had planned to do it right from yeah. the get-go. I'm, I'm grateful for that. And it was definitely my attempt to say, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I got a business minor. But then, you know, when I left school, um, there's still a lot about the specifics of keeping all that straight in the art realm that is a mystery unless you're, you find that right resource that tells you how it works for the art realm of things. It's not, it's not quite the same as just any other business. And the mm-hmm. example I like to use a lot um, that I learned just the last couple of years is that if you're a painter and you're buying canvases, you can't technically expense the cost of a canvas until the date that you sell that canvas. So you might mm. have that painting that you did for, you know, two years ago, and that's inventory. That's a cost that you don't get to expense until mm. you sell it. And But if you buy paintbrushes, you can expense that because the paint, the painting isn't coming with the paintbrushes when it goes yeah. to the customer. So there's a big line difference. And as an artist, when you're coming, when you're getting your materials... Um, there's a big differentiation between what is someone getting when they buy a piece of your work versus what's a tool or a supply. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that for you know until probably five years ago. It's <laughs> curious that that's not part of the curriculum. Yeah. Of like how to be a professional artist. What uh what changes would you would you make after after coming to that realization, or how would you how would you like um, how would you take something like that on board your business? Um, you mean if you were to try to take your art and to make make a living off of it? Yeah, less of like, oh, how do I fix the costs of the materials, but more of like, how do you think about your project in a way that will that makes those not like compromising problems? Um, you know, for me, because I do a lot of digital work, I don't have a lot of inventory. So when it comes to like, <laughs> yeah. but I do when it comes to prints, like mm-hmm. if I buy prints or if I have a print on demand, which I've found a, a printer that I really like and there's a print on demand and it's um, it's bought and sold when someone orders it. I don't have to keep a high inventory for it. So I am yeah. aware, it did, it did keep me more aware of what I will purchase that is something that I can't expense for a long time. But it, it doesn't keep me from doing things like investing in a new computer or mm. um, one day I'll need another iPad to draw on. So yeah. I do invest in how I make my work and all of that stuff that I can pretty much expense right away. But it will influence, oh, I don't want to buy 100 prints because mm. yeah. I don't know if I'm going to sell 100 mm. prints. It, it seems like, too, it informs some of your general direction. Like when I think about now a lot of the products that we've kind of covered uh, or versions where your art's shown, it's things that involve like some level of digital scale, which is amazing for being an artist alive today. We can we can like do something once and then find ways to have it serve more than a single customer mm. a single time. Um, so I, I, that that kind of ties in with making uh, uh, leveling up the results from an investment, I guess, yeah, uh, investment it, of time or resources. It's a it makes a passive income stream, which mm. is really nice. Um, if you can make something once and have it continue to pay you, I mean, licensing mm. is something I'm always striving to do more of. Um, mm. It doesn't happen as often as I'd like, and it's kind of a long game income stream you might sell something as a license and not really get paid for another 18 months Mm -hmm. or something like that but with digital yeah there are some 
rewards to be able to make something once and have it easily transferred into something that you could yeah. have a print on demand or you could, um, you know, sell your own greeting cards if mm-hmm. you wanted to. Yeah, and there's no difference from the original because it's digital as well. Yeah, I try to be pretty pure about that. If yeah. it's um, if I do a painting and it's pretty flat, that there might be a little color uh, adjustment, but things stay pretty much the same. But mm-hmm. um, I do respect a lot of painters who can put something on the canvas and have it done. And once you start doing digital and you can manipulate more and... Um, I, I definitely draw things kind of in individual motifs and then compose so I can do a whole lot of different combinations. Um, to not do that, to not give up that kind of control is actually kind of scary. So like mm. when I got to show with Teresa, I loved being able to see her paintings because it's just, that's there. She layered, she created a composition and it was locked in. Whereas mm. I'm fussing with these cat lady illustrations for a long time about which color combinations are working. And I have the ability to change too much and it's it's too um, overwhelming sometimes. Yeah. How do you what as an artist? How are you just dis- like deciding to be done with a cat oh, lady tough. portrait or anything for that matter? It's hard. Um, sometimes it's uh, it's its own wormhole. You could sit there and try to fiddle with color for a really long time or composition. But I will find that if I step away from my computer for a while and then I'll come back, maybe even after a walk or just getting out of the studio, I'll come back and be like, oh my goodness, no. And you can immediately see. So it's that that age-old advice of when your nose is up against the canvas versus stepping back, the perspective can really change. Um, maybe you could briefly just talk about how you determined that this is like... This, this was going to be your focus, like in your own personal art practice, doing these kind, like bringing these things together and using um, whatever iPad app you're using. Like what drew you to that as the thing that you wanted to do? So um, for a while, when I started illustration, I would do a lot of watercolor pieces. And then as I was um, being presented with opportunities to work for clients who wanted to use watercolor illustrations for branding projects... The turnaround time for that stuff is really quick, and sometimes there has to there have to be a lot of changes, and it's really hard to make a painting or um, you know a hospital campaign and then give it to an ad agency, and then they can't do anything with it because it's just all one layer. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn how to um, draw and paint back then on paper and scanning it into the computer to create movable pieces so that I could mm-hmm. create a composition give it to my client and if needed and they're like, oh, we don't like that color or, oh, we would like a little less of this, a little more of that, I could turn it around a lot faster if those elements were um, singled out easier. So a long process of like painting and then scanning and then going into Photoshop and then cleaning it all up so that I could actually move things around and it didn't look all choppy um, was necessary to be able to meet those demands. Was that like common practice at the time? Quite a bit, yeah. There, I mean, uh, drawing on the iPad definitely changed things mm-hmm. a lot. I use Procreate. That's my favorite. And I love to still draw the long way digitally. Mm-hmm. I use like the 6B pencil on Procreate and I like color everything in by hand. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't use a lot of fills. I still want it to look hand-drawn. Mm-hmm. But drawing digitally um, has changed it. But back then, lots, <laughs> lots of... Um, Painting, drawing, and scanning. If you wanted that hand-drawn feeling in graphic design, which was kind of my specialty at the time. Mm. 
because that's um, what I knew how to do. So I just had to learn how to translate it into a graphic design piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you, uh, and this is kind of a selfish question to be honest, have you had much luck uh, in vending or have you found that, or if you've done it all, have you found it not to be a good like time investment? What do you mean vending? Like uh, going to vending events and stuff like that oh. and selling your pieces. I have not done that. Okay. Yeah. Good. It's, um, I mean, there are some like Surtex as far as surface pattern design is a really big one out in yeah. New York. That's an investment that um, I haven't been able to pull the trigger on yeah. so much. Um, there are a lot of resources out there to learning how to take your artwork, create a doc, be able to send a PDF and hunt for art directors, email addresses, and kind of cold calling them. And mm. granted, getting in front of people one-on-one is certainly more memorable and there is um you usually get a nice contact list of people at those so there's a value but it it can be thousands of dollars yeah yeah i I have my limitations yeah yeah my uh partner is a visual artist too and we've been going we've probably been to like six or seven like smaller vending events and it's really hit or miss so i'm just kind of curious what other people's experiences have been with them well, and then there's also, you know, art fair yeah. style, if, if that's what you mean as well. Um, yeah, or like art a world or like Right, like right. Um, it's, uh, I think if I, I've always been interested in it. I've done one or two, but um, I never felt like I had a large enough body of work in print form or mm. like smaller, like here's all my stickers, here's my tote bags, here's all the collateral that you can add art to, which I love, but um it didn't. It didn't draw me yeah. too much. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I almost. So the first time I ever interacted with your art was when I was doing some pre-production for Teresa's episode, and I just looked you up. And what I actually found was a shop with all like, and I was like, I was looking at all this, and I, I there was like a clock that I liked, <laughs> <laughs> like that. So the the, fir- the first thing that I was really that I that because I the first Which gallery shop? I saw of yours was a was a shop i don't know um i i got there from your instagram um because that's where i reached out to you first was on instagram and then i found some kind of uh print on demand shop Mm -hmm. and i oh you mean like a society six yep that's what it was yeah um that that was the first place where i saw a bunch of your design like apart from your instagram wall i was like well this person has a website or i'll be able to buy something and uh I, I ended up um, finding a clock that I really liked there, and I thought that was interesting. But I forgot in answering that question why I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> Products, oh, like we're, yeah, we're talking about vending, yeah. um, in in kind of like the the digital way. So like you know, I don't even think about like you know what it would be like to sell that in front of people. You could just like you just have your wall kind of yeah you know? here are my things and i one day i'm not uh closed off to it but and a lot of artists will make a successful um revenue stream from really like shopping the vendor circuits and doing all of the art fairs and um it just i i just look i look at it and i just immediately get exhausted mm-hmm. yeah it's <laughs> very like yeah. dealing with people you know yeah people but, coming up and poking at your work yeah, yeah it is another revenue stream though so it can't be denied it's definitely an option if people want to get if they want to try to make a living from their art and they get excited about setting up their stuff and you can get really creative about how you want to display your things and like you can just get into the whole production of it and that can be kind of fun 
Yeah. I, I'm interested in that part of it. That's that's uh, my partner, Abby. That's her favorite part. Whenever we go vend, her booth is always like the coolest looking one. Like it always has mm-hmm. a vibe and like sheets coming down and she'll burn stuff if she's allowed to. And <laughs> yeah, that's always uh, one of my favorite parts. What was I going to... I was about to say something. I forgot. <laughs> well, what, what, what's coming up then? You know, do you have any... Um, any shows either here or in anywhere else in the country uh places that people can go or just projects that you've been inspired by lately yeah um i just recently reopened my etsy shop that has prints specifically my cat lady prints and a couple others so some of the work that i showed at the 410 project Mm -hmm. is definitely available there um all of the i bought some extra prints and brought them to the show so now all those prints are being sold through my Etsy shop. So I have inventory right now, folks, and I don't want to have inventory. So help me get rid of these prints and visit my Etsy shop. But um, as far as show opportunities, um, that collaboration, that fiber art, it's called the Wondermakers Collective. And we were asked to show at the 14th Florence Biennale in Italy this October, which is a huge learning experience for us, but um, ultimately a wonderful opportunity to see our work among other, um, you know, art and designers from all around the world. And we get to see our collaboration in this whole like big fort venue. So we are currently right now crowdfunding in order to help with some of the expenses that come with that. Turns out you have to import, temporarily import your artwork in Italy Mm. and export it and use art couriers and, um, it's expensive to show our work there and Mm. we want to travel to it as well. So we are Mm. focused on a campaign right now to help raise money for us to um, experience that exhibit to the fullest. Mm. And that's another art task that we're just grappling with at the moment. That sounds really interesting. Can Mm. you talk a little bit about how the, how the uh, opportunity presented itself and then what discovering some of those expense like I can't even imagine like do you have to value your art then import it and then pay taxes on it? It's something like I mean I can't I don't even know if I can articulate what I've digested so far about all of it, but um, I'm lucky in that uh, my collaborator Mindy had placed our artwork on like a women artists website, and the organizers of this Biennale contacted us saying we we think. Um, your artwork would be really, really great here. It is, uh, the slang for it is like pay to play exhibit. Like we do have to pay our own participation fees for the amount of space that we're showing our work. That's like $1,400. Like I said before, I don't do like the art shows, but I guess this is kind of the (laughs) trade off to that where we, we are making an investment in that. Um, and so, you know, being flattered to being noticed like oh you would like us to apply for it and then to be accepted yay and then oh okay now we have to pay to participate and ship our work there and learn how to you know pay a security deposit for our artwork to go over and based on the value of our work with our largest pieces heading over there it's thousands of dollars to be able to just insure it and then have it you know, that money kind of comes back in some ways, but in some ways it doesn't. So it came with a lot of ups and downs. Like, thank you for noticing us. And then, mm-hmm. oh no, we have to figure out how to do this now. And what is the what, what is the goal of the install? Is it to sell large pieces? Is it to expose your project further? I think at this point, um, you know, selling the artwork would always be really fun. So as 
compared to my digital work, this is fiber art and it is, it is a piece that's, you know, $5,500. And when that goes, it's almost like goodbye, small child. And Mm -hmm. it's gone and it, it doesn't, um, it doesn't provide anything more than that one transaction. Um, so selling it would be really great, even though it comes with its own complications when you're selling something that's temporarily imported for a exhibition abroad. Um, but really to get noticed by some galleries, it would be lovely to find some representation that might help shoulder the burden that me and my collaborator, Mindy, are really taking on, as well as trying to make the artwork itself, which is a slow process to sit and stitch as many stitches as we're stitching, and then also be advertising ourselves and creating all of these show opportunities for ourselves or finding grants. So we're exploring what a relationship with a gallery would look like and if that could provide us a little bit more stability where we could focus on making the work as opposed to some of the other tasks. Yeah. I So I'm just thinking about how previously you were talking about the little kit that you send people, <laughs> but it, it sounds like between you and your collaborator that this is traveling back and forth repeatedly. Um, uh, like how long have some of these pieces been in the works? Um, the pieces that we're going to show in this Italy, um, exhibition, they are our largest pieces that are like 21 by 27 inches. And we have four of them and it took us about five years to finish them. And that was while we were working on a couple of smaller pieces too. But, um, we have a new series of these 12 inch hoops that right now we're like, okay, let's scale back. Let's go back into a smaller size for a little while. And I would say for the last year, we've worked on six 12 inch hoops that get mailed back and forth repeatedly until they just intuitively feel complete. Mm. So many passes. So like two to four months for the small ones about. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, we have these little four-inch hoops. We did a project where we were like, let's challenge ourselves to do 100 four-inch hoops. But we each Dang. get to touch it once. Um, <laughs> and maybe, again, if it needs a little something. But it was just like a fast exercise to really try out different mark making and threads, see how our styles collab- or mm. collapsed, collided. Mm-hmm. It does collapse sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But to just go, there's always another hoop to make. So it was a practice to not get stuck on how something was looking. Just like finish it, get to the next one. Yeah, it was like an exercise. And those go a little bit quicker, but we're sending about a a dozen back and forth to each other at a time. Okay, okay. Yeah. Cool. So it's, it's quite a process. But it is fun to get mail with like, my next art assignment, here it is. Hmm. Kind of fun. Yeah. Um, And when is this happening? Um, uh, October of 2023. Sure. And cool. you said that you're crowdfunding? We are crowdfunding. Yeah. We're um, we're trying to raise $5,000 right now to help with some of those expenses to just ship the work over and just take a little bit off of what our own costs will be to go and travel. Mm-hmm. And right now we're up to about 1800 Oh, wow. So mm-hmm. we're about 37% of the way. How long has the campaign been going on? We started it about, I think, three weeks ago or so. Oh, cool. Cool. Where can, where can people jump in there if they're interested in helping out? Yeah, um, so thewondermakerscollective.com has uh, a page that sends you right to our crowdfunder. And um, we're on Instagram at thewondermakers. And that's where people can really get a chance to see those process wow. shots in between. And we have a link tree in there that will send you right to it as well. As well as our Etsy shop for Wondermakers where you could buy a kit if you want to try making your own Wondermaker hoop. 
Yeah. Well, it sounds like we've almost started doing plugs here. Do you have any <laughs> other plugs that you'd like to do or things that you'd like to mention or fun anecdotes that you'd like to tell while we're still podcasting? Yeah. I mean, before I mentioned, I've got my Etsy shop um, where I have prints from the 410 Project show. Um, mm-hmm. Help me get rid of my inventory. And uh, the crowdfunder for Wondermakers. I, I would love to plug Paper and Spark. Um, it's an it's a woman who helps people with Etsy businesses keep their book, their bookkeeping and understand taxes. And it was the first resource in all of my, um, you know, journey to learning how to make art a business that really clicked. Like it made sense. It was being described in terms of how it applied to an artist, um, specifically someone who was trying to sell goods or prints or originals of some kind. Um, so I would look up Paper and Spark to anyone who wants to feel confident in how to move forward and make their art into a career and know how to handle all those details. You said Paper and Spark? Yeah. I'm, lit- I'm taking a note right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, I mean, and that's all your socials too? Yeah. I'm on Instagram at Jenna Frymuth. That's J-E-N-N-A-F-R-E-I-M-U-T-H. Um, I have a link tree on there that will send you to um, the Society 6 you mentioned if you want to find a clock <laughs> out there. <laughs> um, or prints or coffee mugs. Just uh, just fun places that I already have surface design living. Cool. Well, awesome. um, yeah, we appreciate you coming on and coming down to talk about what had already happened and what's going on with you. Thank you so much. It was really fun to be able to discuss how important it can be to find those opportunities to sit and really reflect on what you're making and why you're making it and those external motivators that like having being asked to be in a show um really do help me figure things out cool. thank you yeah. thank you thank you very much and also there is